ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You've now got a sort of trend of this headline inflation starting to ease off. It's still a long, long way to go to get back down to that 2 to 3% range, which is the target. And that's why interest rate hikes are not off the table. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independence. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hi there, welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne. And I'm Fran Kelly on Gadigal Land of the Aora Nation. And the big breaking news this week was that the Matildas' woes continue. Not only is our superstar Sam Kerr out for another week, but now star forward Mary Fowler has been ruled out too because of a concussion, which, would you believe it, she got a training such terrible luck, two of our star forwards out for another game. This apparent hex on our favourite national team almost overshadowed the latest inflation figures. It's been our nas- our other national pastime, I guess you could say, yeah. apart from the World Cup, watching the inflation Rates figures. and soccer. Yeah, exactly. You know, can the Matildas win the World Cup? Can we slay the inflation dragon and stop interest rates going up and up and up? So, um, PK... Some good news on that front with the annual rate of inflation slowing to 6% down from the dizzying high of 7.8% in December. What's this going to mean for rates? We'll be joined by Jacob Grieber, Senior Correspondent with the Australian Financial Review, shortly to talk about that, if not to talk about the football. Because, PK, I know we could talk for hours about the Matildas, but... This yeah, is- I, I did want to pitch myself for a podcast exclusively talking about um, which Matilda I currently love. But um, yes, no one wants us to. We're recording this on a Thursday morning. Well, we I know think the a outcome. lot of people would like us to, to be <laughs> honest. But, <laughs> okay. but they're tuning into this one because they love politics. All right. So and, let's um, give them what they need, Fran. Yeah, that's right. We will. The political heat this week, I think it could be fair to say, generated by an emerging scandal around our offshore detention policy. A nine investigation has revealed allegations that government contractors provided suspect and questionable payments to Pacific politicians and officials involved in the offshore detention program in Nauru and in PNG. The Department of Home Affairs, the allegations suggests were looking the other way while this was going on. Allegations only, we must stress. But we are talking millions of dollars here, according to the nine papers. So Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill says the matter is deeply concerning and she's reminded us all that the Labor government is um, very firmly focused on stamping out corruption and brought in the new National Anti-Corruption Commission. Though, PK, we do not know if the government's referring this matter to the NAC, as it's now called, because it's government policy not to reveal any referrals. But looks like the NAC may have arrived in the nick of time. Yeah, boom, boom. It's right. Right, friend. Look, the allegations are unfolding in real time. And as you mentioned, the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, has, has been caught in the crossfire because people will probably already remember that for many years he was actually the Home Affairs Minister. Now, the Nine Papers have reported that he was the Home Affairs Minister in 2018 when he was informed by the AFP of allegations of bribery against an Australian businessman. But just a month later, his department awarded, that was his department to be clear, the same businessman's company a multi-million dollar offshore processing contract. And that contract ended up costing the taxpayer $9.3 million. Now, 
One month after being awarded the contract, uh, Mazamil Bojani was arrested and later pleaded guilty to paying more than $100,000 in bribes to Nauruan officials. So the story of alleged bribes and corruption in our offshore detention system has really embroiled the department at least, but he was the minister in charge. And, you know, we keep getting told ministers are responsible for their departments. He's away on leave at the moment, so he actually hasn't faced questions on it because he's genuinely on leave. And so I think that's taken the heat a bit away from it because he's not here in the crossfire. But Anthony Albanese has made it clear that he does want answers. Here he is. These are very serious allegations against Mr Dutton and he needs to explain exactly what has occurred here. Uh, It has been suggested uh, that he was warned. This is taxpayers' money and therefore Mr Dutton has a responsibility to explain uh, what occurred on his watch as Home Affairs Minister with this scandal. MPK, the Shadow Minister Michaela Cash told RM Breakfast this week uh, that these were, quote, ultimately matters for the Home Affairs Department. As you say, the allegation is these payments were made by the department, obviously. There's no suggestion that Peter Dutton himself signed the contracts. But what this story highlights again, PK, is the millions, or actually the billions, Australia spent on offshore detention and still spends right now the facility on Nauru, which as of last month had no asylum seekers in it, is costing at least $350 million a year to keep open. Now, the government says it's maintaining this facility as a contingency measure, but it's a pretty expensive deterrent, PK, if that's what it's supposed to be. And not only expensive, but according to the nine investigations, also a policy now riddled with alleged corruption. Yeah. Look, the corruption stuff has to be investigated thoroughly, obviously. It's really serious allegations have been made. But on the other front of how much we're just spending uh, full stop on uh, offshore detention when we don't have the people to detain or the boats coming, well, the government would argue, and so would the opposition, let's not forget this is bipartisan policy that you need it there as a deterrent. Now, I know that's highly contested in the community and you look at those eye-watering numbers and you think, really? But that's what they argue. And so I do think that there will be a very live and robust community debate about whether indeed the community thinks that it's worth it. Yeah, because term- it's not just the money either, PK. I mean, I think now that we've, you know, all heard so much from Baruz Bashani and many others and realised that people have been kept there for, you know, seven, eight, ten, twelve years, it's the cruelty of it too. And it was under that kind of pressure, really, that it closed down. We've gotten most of the people away from Nauru and PNG even. But it's, you know, so it's not just the money, it's the policy itself, I think. Yeah, the policy itself, absolutely. But I think the money element does bring it home for ordinary people, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I think that sort of seals the deal of making the argument when the Greens talk about it, for instance, because they've long campaigned against offshore detention. They do mention the, the money because the money is the compelling part of the story as well, that we are spending money on something that people don't think they're getting value for money on because they don't think there's a case to have it. So it does make it more difficult, I think, for the government. And as the years roll on from the time when we did have high numbers of boats arrive, now, of course, they're turned back, so there's lots of things we probably don't even know about. Mm. But from those days, uh, distance probably changes minds too, doesn't it? Because it's not a a live issue right now for people. Although when it was, 
when it was at its peak, um, it was a political problem for Labor. And I don't think people like Anthony Albanese have forgotten that, right? These people have been in politics a long time. And so I don't see this shifting anytime quickly. And on the allegations of payments being made, you know, you mentioned knack coming in the nick of time. Well, the Greens say the NAC isn't the right place to deal with these allegations and there actually has to be a royal commission into it. Uh, I don't see the government taking up that proposal. Um, I don't see much enthusiasm for that. But, you know, obviously uh, this is um, going... We're going to see more stories on this, I suspect, in in coming days and weeks and we'll see if, if any of that shifts. Yeah, so there's definitely some momentum building here. But PK, should we bring in our guest? Let's do it. <laughs> Jacob Grieber is Senior Correspondent at the Australian Financial Review. Welcome to the party room. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Well, it's fantastic. This is your first time with us and I can promise you, Jacob, it won't be the last. Hey, Jacob, all eyes are on the inflation figures this week as, you know, households and markets try to work out if they're going to be slugged with another interest rate rise next month. Headline inflation slowed in June, reducing the annual inflation rate to 6%. That really put a smile on the dial of the Treasurer. It's really pleasing to see that inflation in our economy is moderating further. Uh, We'd like to see it moderate faster, uh, but we are making welcome progress in this fight against inflation. So welcome progress against inflation, but it's still a long way from the ABA's target range of 2 to 3%, Jacob. What do these figures mean for rate rises? Can you tell us? It's going to make it less obvious that they need to make an immediate move, uh, which would be the one in August, and essentially fill Lowe's second last meeting that he presides over. Markets were expecting, I think, in the lead up to those inflation figures, that it was about a sort of 50-50 proposition the next meeting. And that would have come off quite a bit because you've now got a sort of trend of this headline inflation starting to ease off. But as you said, it's still a long, long way to go to get back down to that 2 to 3% range, which is the target. And that's why interest rate hikes are not off the table at this Mm, point. No. And this was obviously extremely welcome news for the government and for for everyone. Mm. But in the US, the Federal Reserve has increased interest rates overnight by 25 basis points, yet inflation there has fallen to 3%, significantly lower than it is in Australia. So even if the bank decides to give outgoing Governor Phil Lowe a farewell present by keeping rates on hold, does that signal that we're not out of the woods? That's what you've just suggested. But what does the US move say, given we do closely follow or look to the US. The US move is fascinating for a couple of reasons. One of them is, as you said, uh, Patricia, they're not out of the woods. They're they're still worried about the sort of long-term pressure that's going to come through on prices. They've got a similar debate there about wages and what's driving wages and whether wages will, will increase that pressure on what economists sort of nerdily call services inflation, which is the stuff that isn't goods. It, it's all the things that you, you pay for for services, as the name says. But a big part of that is going to be wages because people are what drive services, not goods. And the second thing that's really interesting about the US The US and Australian interest rates, the relativity between those can't get too far out of whack because if it does, there's a risk that 
the Australian dollar comes under a lot of pressure. You wouldn't hold an Australian dollar that yields less than a US dollar where interest rates are going to be higher. So that drives down our dollar and that has the unfortunate effect of driving up our own imported inflation. Think of all the fuel that we buy. Mm. We pay for that in US dollars. So if our dollar gets weak, our fuel goes up. So the Reserve Bank knows that it can't be too far out of step with what's happening in the US. Okay. Economist Chris Richardson said yesterday after after these figures came out that, quote, it may well be the peak in rates, but it's not the peak in pain. And he was citing there the millions of Australians who've fallen off that fixed interest rate cliff. We've talked about that a lot here on the podcast and struggling now with all those high interest rate rises all at once. And to add to that pain, people are going to get smaller tax refunds this year. It's tax time now because the government's cut a tax break that people have been getting for a few years. So is he right that, you know, we may have seen the peak in rates, but it's, it's not going to be easier for people. It's not going to feel easier. No, I, I, I think he's right with that. I actually suspect we haven't quite seen the peak yet. My, my gut feel is there's, there's one or maybe two more to come. But the thing that, that I think Chris is alluding to is the fact that once you get to those peaks, you tend to stay there for quite some time. Uh, one of my colleagues writing in the Fin Review today has gone back and looked at the 40 years of sort of interest rate cycles. And you generally find the RBA keeps its peak for between six and 12 months. Mm. Now, the perverse part of that is if Phil Lowe has managed to pull off what everyone's hoping he can do, which is a soft landing, i.e. cool the economy, cool inflation, the narrow path. If he does that, but it's, it's a little too successful, well, then it sort of unravels and then you end up having to stay at this peak for even longer. Because, uh, you know, as, as you noted at the beginning, you guys noted at the beginning, we've still got a long way to get back down to two. Mm. And, and the, uh, the RBA's own forecast is that they won't get there until 2025. Uh, now, it could be longer. So that pain then lasts. 2025, because I think that's something a lot of people are asking themselves. OK, so we might be at the peak and people are going, oh, that's good. No more rate rises or maybe one more. But how long till banks then start to decrease your interest rates and they get something down to something that's a little more uh, less painful. available, for, <laughs> yeah. possible for people to pay. Yeah. yeah, less painful. That's the unknowable thing. And, uh, you know, this, this always happens with the, the central bank. And remember in the middle of the pandemic, uh, the narrative took hold that they weren't going to raise rates until 2024. Now, some people probably took that more literally than they should have, maybe loaded up on too much debt. And they're now feeling just the consequence of that misjudgment. Mm. So at the moment, if everything's static, all the forecasts don't change, the assumption is you don't get back down towards something more sort of sustainable until 2025. So that's a long way away. Mm. Uh, Sorry, sustainable, less painful, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But again, if the economy falls off a cliff, if you have have a recession, unemployment goes up, well, interest rates will come down quite quickly at that point. Yes, that's the that's the key moment. Look, this week also saw the government reveal more details on its second tranche of industrial relations reforms. Uh, the IR minister, Tony Burke, unveiled more detail of what they'd put in an election promise, but now obviously they are moving to legislate in its pathway to permanency for casual workers. Here he is. I want to go back to what the definition always was before a couple of years ago. And that's a practical definition where effectively you ask, what's really going on? If you are working a regular shift that doesn't change and you and the employer know that's the shift and you would like to say, I'd rather switch out the loading and get leave instead, 
so that I know my hours are locked in and so that if a child's sick, I can take a day off without wondering whether or not I'll be able to pay the bills that week. That's something that should be available for Australian workers. Okay, so Jacob, the government says they'll redefine the definition of casual and I mentioned they took it to the election because they did make it clear that they wanted to change uh, the definition of casual. I mean, insecure work was one of the pillars of their election campaign. It could affect 850,000 casuals who work regular hours but no one will be forced to, according to the government, change. But Jacob, do casual workers want this change? What's the cost-benefit analysis for people? So this is where the argument, it becomes really fundamental really quickly. The business community will tell you that the level of casualisation has not particularly gone up in the last sort of decade and a half. There was a big increase in the 90s. Now, part of that might have been to do with more women entering the workforce. And casualisation suits a lot of caregivers because of the flexibility that it gives. The government is saying that business has kind of enjoyed this sort of lurk for too long, uh, that it's not giving people permanency because they like the flexibility of being able to reduce their staff when things turn down and, and increase the staff you know, when, when the economy is stronger or demand goes up. Now, the, the issue is that it looks like a lot of people actually do like the casual element of that, of that workforce. They're often the second income earner in the family and they might be looking after kids or they might be at university and they want that flexibility. And what they also want is the extra cash. They're not so worried about paid leave, uh, long service leave, those, those sort of other additional things that you normally get when you're a full-time worker. Now, the government is saying, as you, as you pointed out, that this is entirely up to the individuals involved. Companies will have to offer it to their casual staff that are working what you might call a permanent style shift, and it'll be up to the worker as to whether what they want to take that up. So that'll be a really interesting test if this passes and becomes law, how many people actually take it up? Yeah, because it's, um, as you say, some people like having the extra cash, particularly at the moment where we've got this squeeze on, but others find it difficult. You know, if you want to get a home loan, for instance, it's really hard if you're just a casual. The bank doesn't count that in the same way. So there are reasons why people might want to go permanent. Well, unions, unsurprisingly, have welcomed the proposed change. The business sector, the opposition, less enthusiastic about the idea. The business is warning the policy will lead to extra costs for employers. Here's the Australian Chamber of Commerce Industry CEO, Andrew McKellar. We're removing flexibility, that we're adding uncertainty in the employment uh, relationship. Uh, that will make it harder to employ people. It will be harder to drive productivity at the enterprise level. Uh, and the risk there is that we don't end up with higher real wages uh, at the end of the uh, equation. So, Jacob, what I don't understand is why this adds to uncertainty and makes it harder to employ people. Well, from a business point of view, it means that, you know, that, that flexibility to, to ramp up your workforce or ramp it down goes away. You've got to carry a longer sort of fixed cost of your workforce if it's permanent. Uh, so I think that's what he's alluding to in terms of uncertainty. Yeah. Um, that, that, that flexibility gets taken away. But on the flip side, if you have been a casual for a long time, right, and uh, you know, you've got fairly regular hours and you are being used uh, in a very regular way, then there is a case, isn't there? I, I think so. I think so, yeah. There, there is, you know, especially if that's, if that's that person's job, it's been that job for a long period of time. It's likely to be that for a, for a long period of time. 
you know, for them, the upside will be, as you say, things like being able to get a mortgage. Uh, they've got more certainty around their own income then. It's, it's harder, obviously, to, to, to be removed. You'd need a payout mm. if you're permanent. All those things yeah. certainly would suit someone like that. So yeah, the, the thing is, the rubber's going to hit, hit the road in terms of the construction of this, uh, this legislation because small business is going to really push for exemptions, aren't they, about being considered for this. Senate crossbench, we know, is really, really um, alive mm. on this. Uh, you know, they've got to get it through the Senate. And on, even on the last industrial relations legislation, they, they really did have to negotiate with the crossbench too. So obviously this isn't going to be as easy as it looks, right? No, it's not. And David Pocock, the ACT senator, who is one of the the key votes in this particular Senate, he held a he held a sort of a you know, town hall or a, a sort of gathering to try and canvas all the views. He he sort of has supported the government in the past on IR, but he's also you know you could argue in the ACT he's he's got a lot of support from small business, and so he's going to be awake to that to that mm. threat there for him. So he'll be interesting to watch. I think Jackie Lambie is going to be interesting to watch. Where she falls on the IR thing again, she you know her history is as a she started out as a liberal uh, in Tasmania, but has often has often voted where the battler goes if you if you put it in those terms. So she might be interesting to watch. It'll be tough. And then at the same time, business is sort of quite upset about the fact that they've all had to sign in the uh, non-disclosure yep. agreements. They, they've sort of been told what the government's planning, but they can't come out and talk about it publicly. So the debate in this, in this space is a little bit through a murky window, is my sense. Yeah, mm. well, I think that might change once Parliament's back and the opposition really gets stuck in, I, I guess. Jacob, the Productivity Commission, not necessarily known to be a bastion of pro- progressiveness, this week released a scathing report into Indigenous disadvantage and government, state and federal mechanisms for dealing with it. They say they're falling way behind the agreement that they signed around closing the gap. The Commission reviewed a 2020 landmark agreement um, between the governments and the peak Aboriginal organisations, which was supposed to see governments moving towards better outcome with Indigenous lead groups and better negotiation. But this Productivity Commission report found the government's effectively failed almost Mm -hmm. on all counts. Does this report make the case for a voice? Take a listen here to the Indigenous Minister, Linda Burney. She definitely sees it that way. If there is ever an argument for the need for a voice, it is this draft report. Is that how you see it? Was that what the Productivity Commission is doing here? The, the poor old Productivity Commission, it gets such a hard rap, isn't it? That they're sort of <laughs> flint-hearted, merciless, dry economists who, who, who slice and dice every element of our society with only one view in mind, the cost of it. <laughs> These were the people that backed the NDIS. You know, they made the mm. argument, the big, the big economic argument for, for something up until that point had been a moral argument. And I think they're doing the same thing here with The Voice. They're, they're, they're saying this stuff is not happening at the rate it should, uh, the governments are falling short, and that the voice would be something that would would provide a kind of accountability mechanism that doesn't exist. So it's, it's, quite, a, it's quite an interesting push by the Productivity Commission into this space. Mm, and they're essentially saying that Indigenous people need to be in control because they have the solutions to their own lives, which is very similar to what The Voice proposes, um, the idea of having control over the policies that affect you. And this idea that government sort of always knows best is, is being challenged here by the Productivity Commission and why a voice would assist in breaking some of that down. I th- I, you know, I think that's a, it's an important intervention by the Commission. 
It is, but at the same time, I interviewed the commissioner responsible and he said, we don't make any direct comment about the voice. No, they don't. They don't. Like, to be clear, they don't say the voice that's, you know, there's a referendum subjected to. It's more about the principles that you can see there's an alignment on. So just to make that very clear. Yeah, that- yeah. and, they, you know, the commissioner sort of says, you know, consultation with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander pe- people cannot be on solutions that are predetermined. Governments need to allow Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to make decisions for themselves and their communities. Yeah, and yeah. they're talking yeah. about the bottom line because that's yeah. what their their focus is and they point to the fact that for so long we've been spending so much money and it's not working and even after governments agreed a couple of years ago around closing the gap to do it differently, they just haven't. They're not doing it. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, this flows into the broader sort of argument that the country's having about the voice. And it's interesting, there's some polling that's just come out that sort of implies the no vote is quite soft, which is pollster speak for voters who may still be swayed in the other direction. Whereas the yes vote is very solid. People who, mm. are, people who are voting yes, you know, they, they're voting yes and they're not going to be moved from that. Whereas the no side, people are still trying to work out where they're going to land. Yeah, it's a really interesting and, you know, still several months away. Jacob, thank you for coming into the party room. Come again. My pleasure. I'll do my best. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jacob. <laughs> See ya. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. And it's time for our question time, which is the best question time in town. I would say that, wouldn't I? And our question comes from Zach. Hi, guys. I'm a a big fan of the show. I had a question about the upcoming referendum and why it can't be split into multiple parts. For example, you could have three questions on the ballot, one on constitutional recognition, which would hopefully be fairly uncontroversial, one on perhaps a narrower version of the voice, Uh, that only applies to Indigenous issues, and a third question on the broader version of the voice that is currently being proposed. Uh, And that way Australians would have more choice over which constitutional change uh, they could opt for without being given a take-it-or-leave-it offer. Well, thank you, Zach, for that question. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question because we now seem to be at this point where the polls are suggesting that um, the majority of Australians certainly support constitutional recognition of uh, Indigenous Australians in our constitution, um, but the voice itself is not popular and could sink the whole thing. But uh, PK, I think the, the the first answer to this is that Indigenous Australians themselves came up with this proposal for The Voice. It was after a long series of meetings, dialogues, they called them. I think there was 12 around the country. And then they had the big meeting of 250 Indigenous Australians at um, Uluru, where it seemed, from everything I know, uh, that the overwhelming sentiment seemed to be that Indigenous Australians don't want to just be recognised in the constitution as having lived here, being the previous inhabitants of this country for 65,000 years, but they want that to mean something. They want that to have some force behind it to make change because how things are now, uh, you know, they are the most disadvantaged amongst us. Mm, That's right. They've told us through the process... And obviously there are some people who don't agree in the Aboriginal community, but the majority of First Nations people have told us through the democratic processes that recognition alone is not good enough. They don't want it. So that's why if you just ask that, they they would not support that and therefore 
the government in charge at the moment, the Albanese government, wouldn't go forward with that. And then the idea of just offering two different versions of a voice, I think that's, you know, would actually probably complicate, to be honest, a referendum to offer two different alternatives of what a voice is. So it's it's not like it's it's an interesting creative idea you've come up with, but I think that's why you wouldn't say it. There is an idea that it is a take it or leave it approach, actually. And I think that's based on what the Aboriginal leadership has asked for. They've said they want this. This is what they think is a fair deal. And now, you know, it's in the hands of Australians. That's it. So thanks very much, Zach. Thanks all of you for sending in your questions. We love getting them. We really love the voice ones like that, uh, that where you record your question. The actual and send voice, it in. No, your not voice. the actual, <laughs> where you use your voice to send in your question. You can email it to the party room at abc.net.au. So just be clear there, not necessarily questions on the voice, but with your voice. With your own voice that you were born with. Um, well, that's it for the party room this week. Um, remember, you can follow the party room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. That's it. See you, PK. See you, friend.